Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 110, recorded on June 16th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. And we start out this week with Mozilla's plans to offer a premium subscription, potentially inside of Firefox. Yeah, this is something that was rumored kind of just before we recorded last week, but uh, didn't have any official confirmation, so I dismissed it. But sure enough, Mozilla have now confirmed this. We don't have many details. All we know is that there will be some sort of subscription service. Firefox will continue to be free. It's likely to be the VPN service that they've already been promoting and possibly some other stuff. Well, what we know at this point is Mozilla seems to be getting ready, at least in the early stages of offering a plan, a subscription, some sort of reoccurring bill that would allow users to access certain premium features inside Firefox. Um, One could imagine a VPN service or cloud storage. It's really kind of unclear at this point what the service will offer. But Mozilla's CEO, Chris Beard, mentioned that both a VPN service and a cloud storage service would be a safe bet. And Mozilla seems intent on offering a subscription starting in October of this year. So this is yet another example of them preparing for the future when the search revenue dries up. And I've seen quite a lot of cynicism about this because Mozilla have got loads of money. They've got loads coming in at the moment. But you have to think long term as an organization. And that search revenue will dry up eventually. We don't know when that's going to be. Is it going to be two years? Is it going to be five years? Is it going to be 10 years? Who knows? But it's not a great idea to wait until your revenue stream dries up and then think of the new one, it's kind of a good idea to have them cross over. So I'm all in favor of this. Some people are really outraged about it and saying, well, that's it, I'm moving off to Brave or whatever. But it's going to be totally optional. I'm probably not going to opt into it, but if a few hundred thousand people do, a few thousand people, whatever, then at least there's some revenue coming in for them. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like what's setting some people off might be the language Mozilla is already using before they've even launched the service. I get where they're coming from, but Mozilla is trying to reassure everyone, and they write, a high-performing, free, and private-by-default Firefox will always continue to be the central element to our core service offering. That's according to the senior vice president of Firefox. He released that in a statement. I actually think it's a brilliant move. Not only does it make them directly responsible for revenue generation, so they don't have to depend on a partner, which I think is very critical for their long-term sustainability, but to me, it seems like they're clearly leveraging a strength of their brand. People trust Mozilla and Firefox to have the best interest of the web and individual privacy and security in mind. And I appreciate sort of a slow approach, a slow ramp up. They're starting with VPN services. They're starting in certain areas, but you can kind of get the feeling, especially when you look at the broader picture here, they're really building towards something else. And to that end, Joe, that's why I think they're embarking on this total rebrand process and, and really trying to come up with a new central brand for Firefox. And they're now talking about Firefox not as a web browser, but Firefox as a quote-unquote brand. It's a, it's a brand that, that is an umbrella of services now. Yeah, there was a post on the Mozilla blog this week, Firefox, the evolution of a brand. And it talks about the change in visual identity, which... Didn't they just change their logo last year? But whatever. <laughs> yeah. but it's, it's more than that, isn't it? It's, it is more about making Firefox itself be a brand, as you said, beyond just the browser. 
And that seems quite smart to me because Firefox is a name that a lot of people know. They might be using Chrome, but they're at least aware of Firefox. And if they can expand that brand to encompass these services, then that's a pretty smart move by them, I think. I think that's just it. They need something outside the browser that still takes advantage of what they would say is their brand equity. They write on their uh, blog, the Firefox you've always known as a browser is stretching to cover a family of products and services, united by putting you and your privacy first. Now, Firefox has a new look to support its evolving product line. Today, we're introducing the Firefox parent brand, an icon representing the entire family of products. <laughs> what that family includes, you got to wait and see. <laughs> well, there's already some things, Firefox Send, Firefox Monitor, Firefox Lockwise, which was originally Lockbox. There must have been some uh, issue with trademarks there or something, and obviously the Firefox browser, and anything else they come up with, with this VPN service or whatever. And it's all using this same brand identity. And I think it looks all right, really. Some people have said that it looks horrible and kind of looks like some other stuff, but uh, it seems all right to me. Unicorn puke, I think I've heard. Yeah, I don't think it's that. People are saying that it's too rainbowy or whatever, but. It's missing a few colors of the rainbow, Joe. <laughs> it's not that rainbowy. There's a few key colors missing from those logos. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, there's no green in it, for example. Right. But, right. Um, yeah, I, I honestly think that it looks kind of quite modern and stuff. And, you know, we've gone through logo changes recently and no one likes it. No one likes a, a refreshed brand. But if you don't change your logos ever, then you end up looking dated. And so I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a hugely visual person, but I think that this looks all right to me. Yeah. And when you look at where they're going with all of this, to me, I can't help but think this is the right way to do it. This is a mature... You build on top of user trust and on top of brand trust, and you layer on services that can directly finance a bigger, broader mission. You compare that with Librem 1, which is really kind of a haphazard rush job where they took a bunch of open source projects, rebranded them without permission, threw them all on a single DigitalOcean droplet and said, privacy and security, everybody! without really having any kind of market trust, where Mozilla is doing the exact opposite. Yeah, you can, you can have your issues with Mozilla's political stances or some of the things they've done in the past or even the business deals they've made. But you can't really argue with the mission they've been on to make the web more open. And you really can't argue with the fact that they have really taken user privacy and security seriously. It's clear from the recent releases of Firefox, and it's been clear from the communications from the company. And instead of it just being some company that's been around for a couple of years, this is Mozilla. They really have a shot here at making something unique, private, and secure. As an on-and-off Firefox user and a longtime fan of what Mozilla's trying to do, I'm ready to directly finance their mission. That's something I can get behind. Not for tribalism signaling or because I want everybody to think I'm all in on privacy and security, but just because I believe in the long-term mission and their track record. And that, that's a big thing here, the track record. Well, I don't think I'm going to contribute to this, but I'm going to continue to use Firefox. I'm going to visit all the different websites with Firefox and send my message that way that Firefox is not irrelevant. And if enough of us continue to use it, then it will stay around, hopefully. And 
I think a small percentage of users will go for this subscription service, and hopefully that'll be enough to keep them afloat and keep them on their mission. Oh, you mean Firefox free? That's cool. I'll be a Firefox premium user, Joe. You can be a free user, a (laughs) Firefox basic. (laughs) You know that's where it's going. You know the story that got my attention, like totally like, what? This week was Apple joining the Open Source Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which is a, a Linux foundation jam. Yeah, I was completely taken aback by this and looking into it, It's not a huge financial contribution. It's maybe around $50,000, but it's more about the message that it sends than the actual contribution. Well, and part of that membership also gets you a seat on the governing board. So Apple's uh, senior engineer, Tom Dorn, will join the board of the uh, Cloud Native Computing Foundation. (laughs) So that $50,000 gets you something. It gets you something, but it makes me wonder... Why would Apple be interested in this? I know that they use AWS quite a lot for iCloud, which is just funny that your (laughs) Apple stuff is all being backed up to a Linux server somewhere. But I just don't understand the motivation behind this. Well, as an iPhone user, I'm perfectly happy to have uh, my backend services powered by Linux, let me uh, tell you. Apple is joining 89 existing members that uh, make up a group of companies that you've heard of, like Adidas is in there, Atlassian, Box, GitHub, The New York Times, Reddit, Spotify, Walmart. I mean, it's a big group of people. And in typical fashion, Apple isn't commenting on the announcement at all. They won't tell us anything, but they have released a small quote saying, we are, quote, heavy users of open source cloud native technologies, and we are looking for a way to give back to the community. (laughs) That's all they said. (laughs) You know, you think about it, though. I'm sure not only is iCloud heavily reliant on Linux, but OS X, or I'm sorry, Mac OS, is a Darwin-based operating system, which is open source. And Apple's big new hotness is Swift, the programming language, which is open source. And while they haven't typically participated very vibrantly in the open source community, that kind of has changed with the launch of Swift a couple of years ago. If you follow Swift on GitHub, you can see where they're going well before Tim Cook gets up on stage at WWDC. They are legitimately participating as a full-fledged open source community, including committing changes before they're even announced on stage. And um, I think this is just part of the new reality. The new reality is you've got to play in this space if you want to be used by developers that are shipping enterprise-grade and production-grade applications. It feels like the whole world has just gone topsy-turvy when you've got Microsoft loving Linux now and even Apple doing stuff like this. I just would have never contemplated it. 10 years ago. I know. That is, that is, there is something weird to it. Like when they, do you remember when Apple acquired Cups, the uh, common Unix printing system? That felt really weird. So we've been kind of ramping up to this for years now. But wasn't that more about stopping it going GPL? Yeah. And keeping a good printing system for Mac OS, <laughs> yeah. which is also why WebKit is their thing. Yeah. 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 Hey, there's definitely some self interest here. Well, I just can't get my head around it. But what I can get my head around is CERN deciding that open source. It's probably better for them than relying on Microsoft services. You know how they're serious is they've given it a name, Malt. That's how you know. It's not like it's not like um like a public gambling strategy where they're trying to play chicken with Microsoft. They're serious. This actually started about 
over a year ago as we record this, when CERN was anticipating that things were going to change with the Microsoft software licensing scheme. They have known this was coming to Microsoft's credit. They gave them a heads up. Hey, you know that sweetheart deal we've been giving you because, you know, you're a collaborative educational institute? Eh, we've decided we're not doing that anymore. (laughs) And so when CERN got that notification, they began the MALT project. Now, the MALT project looks at the wide community and high number of users that participate in different CERN projects and looks at how they can come up with a common technology solution that addresses all of this. This isn't something I really appreciated, but we'll have a link in the show notes. And they write, given the collaborative nature of CERN and its wide community, a high number of licenses are required to deliver services to everyone. And when traditional business models on a per-user basis are applied, the costs per product can be huge and become unaffordable in the long term. A prime example of this is CERN has enjoyed special conditions from Microsoft for the last 20 years. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, like eventually that was going to run out, right? By virtue of the status of being an academic institution, we thought we'd be okay. However, recently, the company has decided to revoke CERN's academic status, a measure that took effect at the end of the previous contract in March of 2019. (laughs) It was replaced by a contract based on the number of users, increasing the license cost by more than a factor of 10. (laughs) Oh, my God. I don't mean to laugh, but this is just stuff that users of open source never have to deal with. Well, that's not strictly true if you think about things like RHEL. Well, sure. Yeah, right. For servers, it's not so bad. You know, if you only had to license the servers, forget CALs. I mean, RHEL doesn't have CALs, client access licenses, but, you know, forget that. Uh, It's not so bad. But CERN felt like they were getting nickel and dimed when it came down to the individual contributor, and they would have to license Excel and Microsoft Office and Windows, and then it got really, really expensive because they want to work with the scientific community, and they want to take in input from individuals in the scientific community, but they don't want to have to buy them Excel and Microsoft Office and Windows 10 licenses to do it. Well, an organization like CERN who can put together the Large Hadron Collider and somehow take us cascading into the darkest timeline that we find ourselves in now, surely must be able to do some good stuff with open source and replace these Microsoft bits of software. I'm with you. Uh, I'm I'm completely with you, Joe. I I've, I'm very happy for them. The only thing I'm concerned about is like their low hanging fruit that they're going after. It's <laughs> like, I mean, it's not like our weakest sauce, but it's not our strong sauce. You know, they're going for replacing Exchange and replacing Skype. That's that's their first step of implementation. And if open source can solve that, they're going to continue on. Couldn't they have started with like replacing IIS or replacing authentication or replacing databases? They had to start with Exchange and Skype, really? Like, that's like worst case scenario. This is an organization that proved the existence of a hitherto unknown particle. Like, they can sort out a FOSS version of Exchange and Skype, surely. Yeah, maybe. Fair enough. I hope. I hope you're right. I mean, they're already running quite a bit of Linux. In fact, they run the the Plasma desktop for some of their analysis machines. So it's not like they're totally new. So, I mean, I just feel like they're not starting with the easy stuff. That's all. They're starting with the hardest. Yeah, but this organization understands how to invest for a long-term payoff. Mm. So we're not probably going to see these things in six months, but they understand that there's no point throwing that money away on Microsoft licenses when they could just invest a lot more than that right now in open source solutions, but then benefit from them forever. 
I hope you're right. That's a great perspective. Like they they understand the long game um, because of the very nature of their work. And considering they have some Linux experience, you could be right. I think what it is for me is Munich wrecked me. You you could see in Munich like all of this potential. They were going to convert an entire government and thereby a state to Linux. And then they just they screwed it up. They they screwed it up in like the old school way. Like they built their own distro, they forked their own version of OpenOffice. Like it was just a mess that created a technical debt that was too much to support. And I think that taught me the most successful Linux switches and deployments are when you go mainline, when you are close to a vendor solution that can be supported by an industry of consultants. What I'm reading here is like, I don't know, it's not quite that. It, 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 it's, it's feeling like it has potential for failure. I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't even say this. I should just sit here and be like, great, great. Certain switching to Linux, what's to worry about? I really should just say that. I shouldn't even consider the ramifications and the possibilities where this could go wrong. But I, I feel like the, that's the problem with doing this for over a decade. I've, I've watched some transition to Linux that have gone exceptionally well, and I've watched some transitions that have gone bad. And... When you start your transition with trying to replace Exchange and Skype, you're either doing it totally right and just trying to like bite off the hardest thing possible at the very beginning, or you're doing it totally wrong. And we just don't know yet, in my opinion. I think we've been doing this show too long, man. We've switched roles here. I was supposed to be the cynical one, but <laughs> I don't know. I just have a lot of faith in the, the people. They're the smartest people in the world, as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't know. I have a lot of faith in scientists and the scientific method and all of that. So I, I don't know. I'm going to remain positive about this. And uh, I'm going to say, don't worry. We, it's not going to be short term, but in the long term, this is going to work out brilliantly. This is the best thing that could have happened to open source. And I think in 10 years, we'll be looking back at this saying that, wow, I'm so glad they did this. I hope so. I really do. I, I hope you're right. I just look back at recent history and think, you know, these guys forked the universe and uh, who knows what they're going to do next. You just can't trust them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> if they hadn't forked the universe, uh, Huawei would be shipping their uh, new MateBook Pros. But now in the new branch that we live in, those aren't shipping. And I'm not happy, Joe. I'm not happy. I had dreams of the perfect MacBook killer running Linux in the Huawei MateBook Pro. It looked like it had the potential. Yeah, but the reason they're not going to ship it is because of potential problems with Microsoft and them not allowing them to ship Windows on it. So who knows what Linux compatibility would have been like, but I guess we'll never find out now. Yeah, it's looking bad for Huawei when they bet on the Windows horse. Um, Who knows? Everything coming out of there right now is just all over the map. You get one story and then you get another story that completely just contradicts everything that you just read. But one thing that seems clear is that they're no longer going to be able to take advantage of Android. And they got a lot of phones they want to ship, and they need to ship an operating system on those phones. And that operating system may turn out to be Aurora, which is a fork of Sailfish OS. Yeah, well, here's what's really, to me, personally fascinating about this story is we are getting more misinformation around this story than I think anything I've tracked 
in the last decade for Linux. Uh, I mean, we've heard everything from a Android clone is just around the corner to a completely in-house OS. And now this new report from The Bell, which is a publication out of Russia, reports that Huawei is exploring, what Joe just said, Aurora OS as its alternative to Android. The publication cites two sources in Huawei who claim to be executives who discussed using Aurora OS. And the Minister of Digital Development, Communications, and Mass Media of the Russian Federation was also a source for this story. Aurora OS is a Russian-made mobile operating system which is forked from Sailfish OS. And this is where we find ourselves. <laughs> what a story. So Sailfish OS may be alive and well on Huawei phones. It really is hard to know exactly what's going on because according to the Bell, they've shipped some of these phones for testing. But then there's a report on China Daily saying that there's been a million phones shipped and yet another operating system. It does just seem to be a cloud of misinformation, as you say. A million phones. Yeah, and, and they say that it's been shipping this custom in-house OS called Hong Meng on a million consumer devices. That doesn't seem possible, but who knows? It's hard to really say what's true or false coming out of China. But according to reports, Huawei's in-house software is said to be compatible with all Android applications. And yet, and this is a quote from Huawei, has an increased focus on security functions to protect personal data. <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course, they're, you know, like if Google's going to shut them down, the number one thing to, to like focus in on would be, well, but now we're more private and secure. This is one that we're just going to have to wait and see, and I suppose we'll just have to keep reporting on the developments as we see them. But I think that by the end of the year, we should know what's going on with this. We'll hopefully see a phone shipping some sort of OS, and it'll be in the hands of reviewers at least. Maybe we can see some YouTube videos or something and see exactly where they go, which direction. It seems like maybe, like Google, often have a few competing departments going in different directions, maybe it's the same for Huawei, and what actually bubbles to the surface will just be the best of them, be it an Android-based one, or Sailfish, or a completely from-scratch operating system. I like to think that, realistically, it's probably just going to be AOSP-based with some of their own services, but we'll have to see. They could take the lead in their market. You know, they could build an operating system that isn't just for phones, but also works on tablets and televisions and cars and smart wearables. We'll see. I think one thing that is true, at least in the West, <laughs> is that the uh, throw it at the wall and see what sticks approach never works. So they better, they better get a cohesive, comprehensive, complete product ready if they want to compete and they want to sell another million devices in the West like they have recently. Well, what better way to throw off your competition than pumping out a load of misinformation? So it wouldn't surprise me if suddenly just bang, they're ready with something that's completely cohesive and thought through and developed. You know what? I like to think that's what they're doing right now. Like a lot of the, the mate books are canceled. The mate books aren't canceled. We're going to ship our own operating system. We're going to ship Sailfish. We're going to ship our own OS. No, it's going to be a remix of Android. Keep everybody guessing until you figure out what the best strategy is. Man, if that's what they're doing right now, I'm impressed. I am really impressed. And it should be. I hope it is what they're doing. Well, maybe Facebook could take a leaf out of Huawei's book because 
their cryptocurrency is the biggest open secret in the tech market. We've been hearing about this for months and months and months, and apparently it's going to be announced this week. And this isn't just some Mickey Mouse operation. It's going to be backed by some huge names like Visa and MasterCard. I know. It doesn't matter how much rocking back and forth in the fetal position I do say, no, Mark, no, it's still going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out it all that fetal position rocking did nothing. Not only is Visa and MasterCard on board, but uh, the great and fine discerning individuals at Uber PayPal, Stripe, and Booking.com are also on board with this new cryptocurrency, which will reportedly be called Libra, which triggers me so deep down I can't even get into right now. (laughs) And it will be unveiled supposedly June 18th, 2019, according to TechCrunch, with a full rollout planned for 2020. It's expected to function as what is called in the community a stablecoin, which means it will be pegged to a basket of government-issued currencies in order to limit the volatility of cryptocurrencies that are usually associated with things like Doge or Bitcoin. Um, Stability is a pretty big concern, especially if Facebook is hoping to attract users in developing countries, Joe. Imagine this. Imagine a future where Facebook's currency, Libra, (laughs) which I can't even say out loud without laughing, becomes the default currency for nations. If that happens, I'm just going to turn in my internet card and go live in the mountains. I'm done, Joe. I'm done. (laughs) It's going to be called Libra because it's going to liberate everyone from the the shackles of the the fiat currencies. (laughs) Ooh, I don't mean to be a snowflake, Joe, but I'm getting triggered. (laughs) Look. Facebook have got the user base already. They, if they wanted to, right, and this is speculation at this stage, but if they want to push it in front of every single active user in prime advertising spots, potentially on mobile where advertising is pretty minimal, you know, like Google do, they put stuff on their homepage and it just, like Chrome, for example, they put it on there and then completely dominated the browser market. If anyone can push cryptocurrencies into the mainstream, it feels like it has to be one of the huge companies, the huge tech companies. And Facebook seems as well-placed as any to do that. Well, they can make the deals with Uber, so you could get Uber rides with the Facebook coin. They could integrate it into Instagram. Obviously, they can integrate it into their advertising platform for Facebook, which is user-generated. And they can integrate it into the Facebook Messenger They are in a very, very, very good position with about, what is it, 2 billion users a month? (laughs) They're in a pretty good position to pull something off like this. It just makes me want to go live in a van down by the river. (laughs) Well, yeah. And the question is, is this just the sort of death rattle of a company that is on its way down, that's been just rocked by privacy scandals and it's just becoming irrelevant. I mean, Instagram is still very much relevant, but Facebook itself, their main platform, seems to be becoming less and less relevant. I mean, I wouldn't imagine your kids would have anything to do with it, for example, and all the older people who run it are eventually going to die. So, you know, eventually Facebook will just go the way of MySpace, probably. So it's either just a desperate attempt by them to stay relevant, and this kind of thing you would imagine has been worked on for months and years probably and so it was probably started during the um 
the heady 20,000-ish dollar days of Bitcoin. And it's probably taken this long to actually work through all the bureaucracy and everything to get it to be announced. And then even so, it's going to be at least another six months before you can use it. So it's, it's either just them desperately trying to stay relevant or it is actually going to work and it is going to bring cryptocurrencies to the masses. I don't know, I think probably the former rather than the latter, if I'm being honest. It is the former. It is the former. We are just at the very, very beginning. And so many of the issues that you just cited don't even matter to so many people around the world. They're not even aware of them. You know, people that don't listen to the show, for example, <laughs> they're just, they're not even aware of the issues. And when you look at the involvement of major financial firms like um, um, Visa or MasterCard, it shows that they're jumping on board not because they want to, but because they have to. They have to. Because of Facebook size, they have 2.4 billion monthly active users. MasterCard and Visa have to respond to that. And there's another element to the story we haven't mentioned yet, which I think Facebook will push a lot in the announcement next week. They're going to establish an independent body to manage all of this that keeps users' privacy in mind and integrates with regulators and, and really kind of is the face of this cryptocurrency, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna push that a lot next week. And I think that will uh, shield them from a lot of the skepticism and a lot of the critical analysis. Is this independent body that's made up of these members like Uber, PayPal, Stripe, MasterCard, and Visa. And they'll bring legitimacy to what should be <laughs> just a ridiculous idea. Well, all I can say to you and our listeners is be prepared for your non-Linux friends to start asking you about this stuff. The kind of normals who are on Facebook will suddenly become aware of this, whether it's this week when the announcement happens or whether it's early next year, presumably when it actually comes out. We will have to field questions about this. And so you'd better come up with a way to explain to them why it's good or bad. Yeah, and, uh, you know, something else is like, go look at it. You know, don't just, like, parrot, like, uh, anti-Facebook uh, FUD, which I would be one of the first to do, but, like, actually go look into it. Go see what it is. But, Joe, I, I feel like the one thing, as an old-time Bitcoin fan, is, like, you got to think about this in one context and one context only. How is this going to affect the price of Bitcoin? A cryptocurrency goes legitimate, right? Yeah, I was thinking it's going to massively boost it. I do too. In fact, I think it's already priced in. I think the Bitcoin community has already seen this coming, and that's why Bitcoin's getting near $9,000 right now. <laughs> Which, when at the beginning of the year, what was it, around six, maybe? Maybe $6,000 when we started recording? And now it's at $9,000 halfway through the year. And I think in part, it's because of things like Facebook's LibreCoin. I think we're in serious danger of getting into Bitcoin prediction territory here, so we should probably get out of here. <laughs> right. We should avoid that at all costs. <laughs> and we've learned our lesson in this show, Joe. Anyways, we'll have links to all of this stuff if you guys want to <laughs> read more. Um, and I'd also kind of like to know what you think about Facebook backing a cryptocurrency. What do, what do you think about that? Especially if it's part of a larger group, let us know, linuxactionnews.com slash contact. And while you're over there, go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And coming up on June 25th, that's a Tuesday at 12.30 Pacific, just before LUP, is another one of our study groups. And this one is Understanding Burnout, which is something I feel I should learn a lot more about, <laughs> and probably all of us should. So yeah, come along to that. Yeah, who knew IT was hard? 
Who knew? They don't tell you that when you sign up. Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting for the details. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I am at Chris LAS. And I am at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later. Thank you.